0: So I'm the children's pastor here. My name is Dan. And uh, being the children's pastor, that means that I get to spend time back there um, on most Sunday mornings with the kids. And uh, we have a great time. We We have a great time. I have a blast with those kids. More importantly than just having fun, though, we get to teach those kids about Jesus Christ, his great love for them, how they can live for him. And it is fantastic. And it's not just me. Right. There is an entire team of talented people that God put in place back in Kidstown that makes Sunday mornings back in Kidstown happen. Uh, these are volunteers who love Jesus, and they love kids, and they combine the two of them, and they make Kidstown place a, place, kids a place where we tell people about Jesus, those kids back there about Jesus. If you're here this morning and you love kids, and, and if you love Jesus, and if you think you might be interested in helping back in Kidstown, I'd love to talk to you, give me a call or send me an email. But especially, let me encourage you that if this is your home church, serve somewhere at Great Oaks Community Church. There's a place for you to serve so that you can be part of this church, being part of the body, proclaiming Jesus Christ to this community. So I'm going to just kind of, at the start here, just urge you to do that. Um, Now I'm going to draw our attention to the study of God's word here this morning. We're in the middle of a series called Scripture Alive, okay? And that's a series that Bill put together after he got back from his tour uh, over in Israel last fall. And uh, Bill, Chris, myself have all been to Israel at different times. Now, my trip to Israel was pretty unique. Uh, This is kind of how my trip went. It uh, It was the year 2000 and I, was serving God in a church back in Lincoln, Nebraska. I hadn't met Leanne yet, so I wasn't married. And I had had an uncle and an aunt that were missionaries in Israel for 35 years. 35 years. And they were about to retire and and about to come home to the U.S. So I thought, man, if I'm going to go to Israel, now's the time. I got to go in the next few months, because they're coming home in just a few months. And I can't pass up the opportunity to have a free place to stay. (laughs) I got a free tour guide, right? I got a free expert tour guide who knows the language, he knows the culture, he knows where everything is, and he has a car. (laughs) I thought, I can't pass that up. And so I invited a friend to go with me. And the two of us went out to Israel. And uh, at this time, my aunt had to come home to take care of some family business. but my uncle was still over there. And at this time, uh, for about 15 years up to this point, he had been living in a, in a Palestinian-controlled territory. All right? so, so he was ministering to the Muslims. Uh, it's not a place any tour bus is going to go. All right? And it's not a place really that any Christian from the United States is going to find themselves unless they have a reason to go there. Okay, but this is where he was living, so I kind of got to see that side of it a little bit. For about seven days, I think I was there seven or eight days, if I remember right, okay? So for about seven days, we were on the go. I mean, from sunup to sundown, we were in the car, and we were going all over the place. He was taking us everywhere. You can cover a lot of ground, right? If there's three of you, and you have someone who knows where they're going, right, And you do it all day. You travel all day. You can cover a lot of ground. And we cover a lot of ground in seven days. The first day that we got up, okay, so the first day we got up and we walked out of his building and we were going to his car. And there was a building connected to the building he was living in. And there were, I don't know, three or four or five or six guards standing there. And they were carrying rifles and pistols. They were clearly not Israeli soldiers because Israeli soldiers wouldn't have been in that area to start with. And so I, uh, so I saw them and I asked my uncle, I said, what's the deal with the guys and the guns? And he says, and he says well, a very prominent Palestinian leader's family lives in that building. So he puts these soldiers around there uh, to keep them safe, right, these, these security guards around there to keep them safe. Uh, and so after he told me that, I, talk, I was looking at my uncle, I said, I said, what do these people think about you living here? Right? I mean, what uh, do they welcome you? Or are they glad you're here? What do they think about you living here? All these people around you, right? He's in, a, he's in a Muslim, Palestinian-controlled territory. And he says, in all seriousness, he says, Dan, many of these people around here just want me dead today. Not the way I pictured my tour starting. <laughs> and I thought, wow, huh? wow. I mean, think about that. So, right, here's a couple. They moved to the other side of the world. For years and years, they live in an area where they are not welcome. That's not to say, that's not to say that they didn't develop some close relationships. They, de- they developed some very loving some. some Very loving relationships with some Muslims there in that area. But for the most part, even to a small degree, they walked around with a target on their back. Uh, Why would they do that? Why would they do that? They left all the securities and the comfort of the U.S., and they go over there where they're not welcomed by the majority of the people. It seems like a simple answer, and it is a simple answer when you get down to it. It's because they love Jesus. And that's not to say that everyone who loves Jesus has to go to Israel. That's not what I'm saying. It's not saying that everyone who loves Jesus has got to go to some tribe in South America. right? Or even New York City. Right? That'd be about the worst. right? <laughs> um, but it's because they felt God's call on their life to proclaim the name of Jesus to a group of people who probably would not have ever heard the truth of who Jesus is if they didn't go. So who is Jesus? I mean, who's worthy of that? right. That's our question this morning. Who is Jesus? Uh, This morning as we look at this passage, it is out of Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 13. So I want to ask you to open up your Bibles to that passage. Uh, We're going to learn three truths about Jesus this morning. Three truths. And there's a lot of truths about Jesus. (laughs) These are just the things this passage points out to us. Matthew chapter 16, starting at verse 13. Let's start in the first verse there, verse 13. It says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea, of Caesarea Philippi. Let's stop there. We didn't get very far. All right. So when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi. All right. I want to ask that you pull up that map. All right, if you look just to the north and a little bit to the east of the Sea of Galilee there, there's Caesarea Philippi. All right, that's where our Scripture Alive journey takes us today, Caesarea Philippi. Don't confuse Caesarea Philippi with with Caesarea that is down here on the coast, all right? Caesarea is a much larger, uh, a much uh, more glamorous city than what Caesarea Philippi would have been at this time. All right. Caesarea Philippi is a, or at this time was a city uh, full of pagan idols. Not that many people lived there in Caesarea Philippi, from what I've come to understand through my time of study. All right, perhaps the people who took care of the temples and the idols, uh, maybe some merchants, but uh, for the most people, but for the most part, people traveled to Caesarea Philippi. Uh, they did their worship, and they went home. As I said, it was a city full of different idols and temples. Uh, three prominent temples were there, as far as historians could find out for sure. All right? Let's go ahead and pull up that picture. All right, so here's three different temples. One of them, and they kind of put them in, this, in these places based on where they found the foundations to these temples. But from what they believe, one of them there was a temple to the deity of Caesar, all right, And then one of them was a temple to Zeus. And then one of them was a temple of Pan. Pan was a Greek god of the wild. That's what he was. He was, the, he was the Greek god of the wild. And it was believed that Pan was born there in a cave somewhere around there. So they built this temple so that they could worship Pan. These are just three of the temples. There were probably more temples. There were more idols. There's another picture there also of a little... All right, so here's these different little notches they would put in the side of the mountain and in those little little notches they made they'd put different idols all right so so around the temple they put all these different idols all right so we have Jesus and his disciples now Bible scholars aren't sure if Jesus and his disciples actually went all the way into the city or if they just walked around the city going somewhere else they weren't quite sure but for our purpose here this morning we'll just say that they were at the city of Caesarea Philippi all right So now, Jesus is walking in the region, uh, and he's walking there to or near the city of Caesarea Philippi with his disciples. Now, let's pick it up. All right, before we pick it up, I want to say one more thing. (laughs) All right, so as Jesus is walking by with his disciples, and they see these temples and these idols, they can obviously... Uh, See the worship going on. They see these temples. I can't help but think that it helps them create a conversation about what's going on. Who are these idols? Who are these people? What's going to happen to these people, right? Conversation going around a topic like that. All right. So now, during the course of that, Jesus asked them, and he says, He asked his disciples, verse 13, Who do people say the Son of Man is? Who do people say the Son of Man is? Okay. Who is the Son of Man that Jesus was talking about? He's talking about himself. Get this. 85 times in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, 85 times Jesus is referred to as the Son of Man. 83 of those 85 times, it was Jesus calling himself the Son of Man. It was his favorite way to refer to himself, the Son of Man. Why would he call himself the Son of Man? I thought he was the Son of God. Why would he call himself the Son of Man? It's a great question. I'm glad you asked. (laughs) If we flip over to Daniel... Chapter 7, you don't have to flip there if you want, I'll just read it to you. Daniel, chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. Listen to these words of Daniel as he's describing a dream that he had or a vision that he had. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples and nations and men of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Did you catch that right there? I looked and there before me was one like this, a son of man. What's Jesus doing? Jesus is declaring that he is the fulfillment of that prophecy. Jesus is saying, I'm that person, the son of man. Jesus is saying, I am the one who is going to set up an eternal kingdom, receive all glory, honor, and praise made up of people from every language around the world. And that kingdom will never be destroyed. I'm the king of that kingdom. That's what Jesus was saying when he keeps referring to himself as the son of man. Now, friends, 85 times in the Gospels. So the next time that you read, Jesus, calling himself the Son of Man, I want you to remember what he's saying. Okay, He's saying he will be the fulfillment of that prophecy. He hasn't fulfilled it yet, but he's saying he will be the fulfillment of that prophecy. That's awesome. That's cool. Now think about this. Jesus is talking sometimes to very large crowds. Some people in that crowd believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be the Son of God. Some of those people don't believe it. But to those people who believe that he was the Son of God, that phrase, Son of Man, that meant something to them. That encouraged them. They're like, yeah, that's who he is. That's why I believe him. That's who I'm following. Right? But some of the people were not believers. They didn't believe that Jesus was who he claimed to be. And they heard Jesus say that, Son of man, they thought, he's a son of a man, I'm a son of a man, we're all son of a man. That doesn't mean anything, right? It kind of goes along with the phrase that Jesus used several times when he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear, right? What Jesus would say as he told a, as he told a parable, sometimes he would say that, let he who has, has ears to hear, let him hear. What Jesus was saying, for those of you who believe I'm the son of God, this will mean something to you. For those of you who don't believe I'm the Son of God, this parable means nothing to you. You don't even understand it. And now when Jesus says the Son of Man, it's the same thing. To those who believed him, it meant a lot. It was an encouraging statement. They were like, yes, that's him. To those, others, he's like, ah, whatever. He's the Son of Man. I'm the Son of Man. I got better things to do, right? The Son of Man who will come and establish his eternal kingdom and rule over it forever. Who is Jesus? The Son of Man. I have a box. I got a few things I'm going to pull out this morning. The first is a crown. I'm going to put the crown over here. That crown is just a visible reminder of where we've gone so far in our passage this morning. Jesus, the Son of Man, who will set up an eternal kingdom That will never be destroyed. It's awesome. We get to be part of that kingdom, friends. We get to be part of that. Let's keep going. Matthew, chapter 16, the next verse. They replied, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. All right. So the disciples answered Jesus' question about who do they say the Son of Man is, and they said, well, some of the people say that you're John the Baptist. Some say Elijah, some say Jeremiah, and some say one of the prophets. Why those names? Why would they think that he's one of those people? That's interesting, right? I'm going to quickly go through those names. John the Baptist. The Jews at that time believed that John the Baptist was going to be the forerunner who was going to announce to the world the coming of the Messiah right? They were right, right? That's who John the Baptist was. But they didn't believe that, or of course, like many of them, didn't believe that Jesus was that Messiah, right? And so they thought, well, this man's got powers. He must be the reincarnated John the Baptist. John the Baptist at this time had already had his cut. He had already had his head cut off. He was dead. And they thought, well, maybe now this is the reincarnation of John the Baptist coming to proclaim the Messiah is here and he's coming soon. All right? The second one is Elijah. Right? He was probably the most important Old Testament prophet to the Jews at that time. Okay? So they were putting Jesus up on a very high pedestal up there with Elijah. Right? And then there's also Jeremiah. He was also a very old, He was a very important Old Testament prophet. Right? There was a thought and a teaching that time that Jeremiah would come back, back to life again, and that he would find the Ark of the Covenant, put it back in the temple, and reunite all the Jews around that Ark of the Covenant again. Right? So they thought, wow, this is Jeremiah. This is awesome. Right? And then others really had no idea. And they're like, he must be a prophet. I don't know who he is, but he's, he's got to be somebody. Right? Friends, think about that. In 2,000 years, when you consider the heart of mankind, not that much has changed. If we ask people around our community today and in our country today, who is Jesus? Many times we will hear them say, he was a man. He was a great man. He was a powerful man. He was even a prophet. He was even sent by God. He was a smart man, a brilliant man. Right? Those are some of the things we would hear them say. They say other things also, but those are some of the common thoughts about who Jesus was. But they stop short, don't they? They stop short of declaring Jesus for who he really was and who he claimed to be. The son of God. Not that much has changed in 2,000 years. Let's keep going. And then Jesus, he, he turns his attention towards his disciples and he says, but what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You are the Christ, the son of the living I want us to look at that phrase, the Christ. The Christ, we use it all the time. Jesus Christ, right, the Christ. Some people will be surprised to hear that Christ is not Jesus' last name, right? Because we tie them together all the time. Jesus Christ, right? It must be his last name. No, it's not his last name, right? Christ is a title, right? It's a title. Uh, some of your Bibles will have, and this actually may even say it too, it says the Messiah, okay, instead of the Christ. It's the same word, all right? Except Messiah is the Hebrew equivalent to the Greek word Christ. They mean the same thing, all right? This is what it means. It means the anointed one. The anointed one. So Peter Answering Jesus' questions, he says, you are the anointed one. The anointed for what, right? The anointed for what? Well, this is what he meant at the time. This is what they mean when they would say Christ. The anointed one by God the Father, who was given a divine appointment to deliver God's people. That's what they meant when they said the Christ, the anointed one. He was given a divine appointment by God the Father. To deliver God's people. So when Peter said that, he believed 100% that Jesus was the Christ, and he was 100% correct. He just didn't know how he was correct, okay? Because he thought, still, along with all the disciples, that Jesus, indeed being the Christ, was going to deliver God's people. But he thought God's people at this time meant the Jews, And that Jesus was going to deliver them from the oppression of the Roman Empire. And that he was going to establish a Jewish country or a new Jewish nation. That's that's what they thought at the time. Not until Jesus died, resurrected, ascended, and placed his spirit within the lives of his followers did they begin to understand what truly Jesus meant and did and was doing. All right? Peter was correct. He just didn't really understand how he was correct. The Christ, the anointed one. Friends, Jesus is the Christ. The one sent from God to deliver the people, his people, from the sin of bondage or the bondage of sin. And not just the Jews, everybody, all his creation. When we say Jesus Christ, we mean that he is the anointed one sent from God to deliver all of his creation from sin. And the bondage and the guilt and the shame that all goes along with sin, it's God. God. Right, amen. Jesus the Christ. That's why it's so disgusting when you hear people take that name, right? So frivolously and profane. right? They use it like it's a swear word. No, Jesus the Christ, the anointed one of God, sent to deliver us from our sins. It's awesome. The second thing that we learn about Jesus as we go through this passage is Jesus is the Christ. All right, I'm going to pull out... crown of thorns this is how he delivered mankind from our sins dying on a cross for you and for me so our sins can be forgiven forever securing a place for us to be a part of the kingdom of god that will never be destroyed amen Amen. jesus is the son of man jesus is the christ let's keep going 16, Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven then he warned his disciples not to not to tell anyone that he was the Christ Admittedly now these can be some confusing verses and they are i believe probably the most debated verses in the New Testament in the history of the church okay and I'm not going to sit here and argue all about these verses I'm going to tell you how I interpret these verses. Some people interpret these verses to mean that at this point, Jesus was making Peter the head of the church, giving him complete authority over the church, and even at this point, allowing him to speak on God's behalf on earth. Okay? I don't interpret these verses that way. I'm going to tell you how I interpret these verses. Just very quickly. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. Verse 18 says, And I tell you that you are Peter, When Jesus called him Peter, he changed his name, right? From Simon to Peter. And when he called him Peter, he used the word Petros. Petros is the masculine form of the word rock. It actually is better translated stone, okay? So he says, you are Petros, stone, and on this rock. When he uses the word rock there... Jesus is using the feminine word of the feminine form of the same word that actually is best translated as bedrock or mountain. Okay? Now knowing that, let's read it one more time. And I tell you that you are Petros, stone, and on this rock, bedrock, I will build my church. But what's the bedrock Jesus is talking about? People vary and differ in their opinion of what he means when he says that word rock or bedrock or mountain. I personally believe that he's talking about the truth contained in Peter's confession when he says Christ the Lord. I think that Jesus' reference when he said rock was, was talking about that confession. Jesus the Christ. Okay, so now having put all that together, let's read it again. And I tell you that you are Peter, a stone. And on that rock, the confession that you just made, I will build my church. Okay? That's how I understand those verses to be. Hey, but listen, I understand there's two, there's two sides to every coin. All right? And if you're here this morning and you've done study on this or you want to do study on it, and you come up with a different opinion, hey, I'd actually be interested in, in, in sitting down with you and talking about it. Those of you who know me know I'm not argumentative. If you're looking for an argument you come to the wrong guy. But I would actually be interested to see how you interpret these verses because they are fascinating verses. But I'm especially interested in that phrase at the end of that sentence or in the middle of that sentence. I will build my church. I will build my church. What did he say? He said he was going to build this church. Not Peter. Not the apostles. Not Dan. Not you. He will build his church. Friends, if Peter or the apostles or any of us here build a church, you know what's going to happen to it. It'll be over before it even starts, right? I've seen some of the things you people build. All right. I'm teasing. Okay. If we build the church, it's not going to last. If Jesus builds the church, it will last forever. Forever. Jesus says he will build the church. No one else is building that church. There's another reference. This goes along great with the songs that the worship team sang this morning, Cornerstone. I'm going to read this verse to you out of Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 19. It says, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you are being built together to become a dwelling which God lives by his spirit. Jesus is the cornerstone He's the one who holds it all together. He built his church. No one else. And what's interesting, even more so, I think, is that next phrase. It says, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I used to read this verse up until I was preparing for this message. And I always kind of substituted in my head during conversations or whatever. And I would always say, and the gates of hell would not overcome it. But it doesn't say hell. The King James Version actually translated, translates it as hell, which I don't think is right. Jesus said Hades. And when Jesus said Hades to his disciples at that time, they immediately thought of death. Death. Because they believed at that time that Hades was a holding place for the spirits of dead people. All right? So when he said, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it, they thought of death. Essentially, Jesus was saying, I am going to build my church. And the work that I do through it, not even death itself is going to be able to stop. Amen. Not even death itself can stop what I will do through the church. 2,000 years later, friends, the church is in existence. And it's been attacked over and over and over and over and over again. And the church of Jesus Christ still exists. No one can do that except for Jesus. That's awesome. And when Jesus started the church, it's interesting to me that he started in a time and in a place where it was not received. The people got persecuted because of their faith, right? And Jesus used that persecution to fan the flames of the church to the known world. Throughout history, we can see how Jesus has used persecution to cause the church to grow. In fact, I would go so far to say that churches grow better under persecution than they do any other time. A recent example is China. I read an article that was published out of the Washington Post in December 2015, talking about the church in China. Get this, friends. Get this. This is amazing. Scholars believe who study these type things, these sociologists or whatever, right? that there are between 67 and 100 million Christians in China today. The Christians in China have been persecuted for decades. All right. By the year 2030, keeping with the current growth of the church in China, they estimate there will be 250 million Christians. 250 million Christians, that will by far make it the largest Christian country in the world. That's awesome. Only Jesus can do that. That's awesome. Who is Jesus? He is the builder of the church. And he uses his church to take the message of himself out into the world. And it will never end, friends. The church will never be destroyed. Who is Jesus? He's the builder of the church. We got a hard hat for Jesus being the builder. We got a crown for the son of man. He is going to establish his kingdom and it will last forever and he will be the ruler of that kingdom. Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one sent by God to, for, to deliver his people from their sins and their bondage to sin and to secure a place for us in eternity forever. Jesus is the builder of the church. And the church will never be destroyed. And he uses it to take his message and his hope and his joy to a world that is lost and needs to know. That is the Jesus we worship Sunday mornings at Great Oaks Community Church. Amen? Amen. Amen. Awesome. I'm going to conclude by asking you a question. The same question Jesus asked his disciples. Who do you believe he is? For many of you here this morning, this has been a review. Hopefully you learned some things along the way and are encouraged by hearing it. Some of you here this morning, maybe the first time you've heard this. Who do you say Jesus is? Friends, you've got to decide for yourself. Your parents, your spouse, your kids, your friends, your neighbors, your teachers, they can't decide for you. Jesus gives us that wonderful privilege of being able to decide for ourselves who Jesus is. And if you're here this morning if God's been speaking to you and you've come to understand, you have yet to declare that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one who came to deliver you from your sins. I'm going to give you an opportunity in just a moment to do that. I'm going to ask that every head be bowed now, everyone's eyes closed as we pray in just a moment. But if you're here this morning and you are feeling God call you to declare him as the Christ and want him to forgive you of your sins, I just ask that you please just slip your hand up for a moment and put it back down. Thank you. Dear God, we thank you so much. For the message that we have in your word. The message of Jesus Christ. The hope that goes with that name. The forgiveness that we can have. God, I pray that we always are filled with awe and joy and strength and even conviction as we proclaim Jesus to be the Son of Man, the Christ, and the Builder of the Church. God, we love you. We say thank you for that gift of Jesus Christ. All we can do is say thanks, declare you our Lord, and live for you. And Father, I pray that you give us the strength every day to do that. Oh God, how we love you. Thank you for sending us your Son, Jesus. May we proclaim him boldly confidently, and walk intimately with him today, this week, and all month and all year. It's in the name of Jesus Christ, your son, we pray. Amen. If you're here this morning and, and you raised your hand, I ask that you take that, take that welcome card and just write down there your name and let us know so that we can be praying for you and so we can contact you and just help you take your next step also with Jesus Christ together